turn to Acts chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 16 to 31. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some under the chairs, and the sermon text is also printed on the blue sheet in your program, and on the other side is an outline so that you can follow along and uh, take some notes if you wish. We are continuing our series on the Apostles' Creed, and I want to remind you that the Apostles did not write this creed, but this creed summarizes the basics of what the Apostles taught about who God is, and particularly who He is as He's revealed in Jesus. Um, And this morning, we're going to be reading uh, one of the messages, one of the sermons, one of the proclamations of the gospel that the Apostle Paul gave while he was in Athens. Um, And this, among the other sermons uh, given in the book of Acts by various apostles, will help us understand a little bit about what the Apostles' Creed is teaching us. So last week we talked about, I believe this week we're going to cover God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all in one sermon. Lord, help us. Would you stand as we read God's word together? Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, And in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Sounds familiar. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship... I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." But then God, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Let's pray. Father, how, how good it is that we can call you Father. And in spite of all of our experiences with our earthly fathers, as earthly fathers, uh, all of whom fail to um, live up to the standard of what a father is, we know that we could come to your word and learn that you are our father. You are the father from whom every uh, family and fatherhood derives its source. And so would you help us this morning, Father, to see you as you are, to help uh, clear away the clutter in our minds about who God is as our Father, who you are as our Maker, as our Almighty King. Would you clear the clutter and show us clearly who you are so that we might love you, um, respond to your your love for us with, with love back to you, and out to others in the places you put us. Would you do that in us by your spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Last week, David talked about the first two words of the Apostles' Creed, I believe. And um, as I was thinking about that last week, I was reminded of one of my favorite things to do as a pastor, and that is to... Prepare couples for marriage and officiate their weddings. And I thought of a particular phrase in what's called the Declaration of Intent. Um, And this phrase, I'm going to read it to you in a moment, really helps me capture um, and understand what this I believe means when we say the Apostles' Creed. Here's, Here's what in my wedding ceremonies Um, the declaration of intent sounds like. There's a few in this room who will remember this because they repeated it or they heard me say it to them. It goes like this. Do you, groom, now take bride to be your wife, to live together in the covenant of marriage? And do you promise in the presence of God and these witnesses in reliance upon the grace and power of Christ to love her, comfort her, Honor and keep her in sickness and health, and here's the phrase, and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live. And then the bride repeats, says the same thing. Forsaking all others and being faithful to her or to him. The powerful and significant line that's purposely in the declaration of intent. I I tell the bride and groom in our premarital coaching sessions that what they're saying when they say that is is this. I'm giving up all these others and I'm giving myself to you. I'm forsaking, leaving, turning my heart away from all the other billions of women or men in the world. And I'm clinging to you. I'm devoting myself to you intertwining my heart and life with yours until death separates us. It's about what the Bible calls leaving and cleaving. 
when I gave myself to Christine, I, I gave up all the other women in the world <laughs> that were certainly lined up at the door waiting, <laughs> right? But not, I gave up my pursuit of all other women in order to give myself to her. When I read, I believe, at the beginning of the Apostles' Creed, I think of this. I'm giving up the pursuit of other gods in order to give myself to this God. Forsaking all ways of thinking about and living life, I'm clinging to, devoting myself to, intertwining my heart and life with God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and the Holy Spirit. As David said last week, I believe is not simply a mental assent to what sounds like a good thing to believe. It's not less than that, but it's more. I believe is better rendered, he said, I believe into. It means I'm forsaking all other gods and I'm entering into a lifelong, life-consuming relationship with the God of the Bible. It's more than rational consent. It's also relational commitment. It's more than saying that those propositions sound good. It's also investing my whole life in a person whom I trust as my greatest good. This forsaking all others for the sake of joining myself to the true and living God is what the Bible calls repentance and faith. Repentance literally means to change one's mind. Faith is resting one's entire way of thinking and living on God as he's revealed in the 66 books of the Bible. As he's revealed as the God that the apostles preached and taught, which is summarized in the Apostles' Creed. The God who has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. Well, in this sermon at Athens, Paul is inviting, no, let's say commanding his hearers, and us, to forsake all other ways of thinking about and living life, repent, and then in faith to cling to and rest in God's way of thinking about and living life in and through Jesus, the Christ. And so this is the basic structure of this part of Acts 17. Paul makes it clear that the way both Jews and Gentiles had been thinking about and living their lives in relationship to God... That must change. They must leave their ideologies and their idols and cleave to God as he has revealed himself through Jesus Christ. So look again at verse 30. When Paul says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, he's saying, okay, folks, time's up. In Jesus, God has fully and finally revealed what had been unknown or partially known about God. It's time for you to forsake your own understanding of God and enter into a relationship with God as he is understood in Jesus. And so I wonder if God might be saying that to you this morning. Maybe for the first time. Perhaps he's asking all of us to consider whether we have truly forsaken all other gods, especially the God we look and see in the mirror Every morning. Have we forsaken all other gods to enter into a wholehearted, entire life commitment to the God of the Bible? 
consider that as we look at Acts 17. So let's do that now. So a couple of questions. Who were Paul's hearers, and what was Paul asking them to forsake or to leave? Verses 17 and 18 said he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And then some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So these are the people he's speaking to, Jews. Jews believed in one God, Yahweh, the God of what we call the Old Testament. Devout persons, who are they? Well, in other places in the New Testament, they're called God-fearers. They were Gentiles who worshipped the Israel, the God of Israel, but had not fully converted to Judaism. The marketplace people. Uh, this included all kinds of pagan idol worshippers. And then the Epicurean, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Let me kind of explain briefly what they believed. Uh, D.A. Carson explains this. He says, The Epicurean and Stoic philosophers represent two of the most popular philosophies of Paul's day. Epicureanism affirms a materialistic worldview, which means all that is is what you can see. And, And they consider pleasure the greatest good in life. One achieves this pleasure not by self gratification, but by living modestly, gaining knowledge about the world, and limiting one's desires. Stoicism on the other hand, is pantheistic. In other words, they believe in the divinity and unity of all things. I hear (laughs) Obi-Wan. Stoics seek to maintain harmony with nature and to avoid all destructive emotions. So all of these people and all of the things they believe about God are, are, are still around today in some form or fashion. You've got monotheists like the Jews and... Uh, Muslims, you've got devout folks who believe they worship the God of Abraham, but they haven't fully committed. You've got people in the marketplace who worship all kinds of things or who just don't worship at all, so they think. And you've got folks who are like the Epicureans and Stoics uh, with a modern twist. But what was Paul asking them all to forsake? He said... I perceive that in every way you're very religious, and that word religious could be taken positively as you're very pious people, or negatively, you're, you're superstitious. But whatever you are, you're committed. And he says, there, I found this altar marked to the unknown God. This is just kind of a catch-all uh, altar. It's like, just in case we missed one, we want to make sure that we're good with everybody. Well, Paul says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He called them to forsake worshiping without knowing. That's literally what that phrase means. Without knowing, you worship. But then he says, I'm going to proclaim to you the truth so that you may worship what is true. Both Jews and Gentiles needed to know that they cannot know God as he truly is without knowing him as he is revealed in Jesus. And that's what the Apostle Creed does. It summarizes what the Apostles taught about God as he's revealed in Jesus. So he was saying, and he says to us, give up all other gods and give yourself to the true and living God. 
Um, one guy that I follow on Twitter said this this week. Ultimately, there is but one idol, self. Any other idol we craft exists only to serve that one. This is true for Gentiles and Jews both. And for us, if you do not worship God as he's revealed in Jesus, you worship a false god, an idol. And if you choose to worship a god other than the one preached by the apostles, you've simply just chosen to worship yourself and your own choices. These are hard things. Paul is not mincing words. In order to believe what the apostles preached, you have to not believe a whole lot of other things. So... Who is this true and living God? Folks, David preached two words of the creed last week. I've got nine. So buckle up. Here we go. Here we go. But he has to preach the whole rest of it, so that's all right. Um, so who is this true and living God? What, what am I saying I believe into when I say the Apostles' Creed? To what God am I devoting myself? Now, you'll notice we're going to start with a wide-angle view that God is that he exists. And then we'll begin to zoom in from wider to more focused descriptions of God in in this first clause of the creed. He is the maker of all things. He is almighty. He has all power. And yet he is altogether a merciful and gracious father who loves his son and those for whom his son gave himself. I believe in God the Father, almighty, maker of heaven and earth. First, we're saying, I believe God is to what am I giving myself when I say this? I'm, I'm saying there is a God. And he is the true and living God that the apostles preached. Paul said, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God. But what am I giving up when I give myself to the God who is? Well, I'm giving up living like a naturalist or a materialist. That's a person who says there's nothing that exists except matter, nothing more than the material. I'm saying that there is a spiritual realm that I cannot see. You'd be surprised of uh, how great a, a bold statement that is in this day and age. I'm also giving up living like an atheist, like there is no God. I'm saying there is a God, and I can't ignore him. But I'm also giving up living as an idol worshiper, picking and choosing my own God or creating a God in my own image, one that suits me. Paul said in verse 29, We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He said that while surrounded by temples that had statues of all of these gods that they worshipped. The true and living God is not one of these idols. He's not created by the imagination of or hands of people. So what I'm saying is there is a God, and I don't decide what he's like according to my preferences. I discern what he is like according to the revelation of himself in the Bible. Now, you may sit here and think, well, that's fine. There's probably not a lot of non-Christians in here today, so why do we need to talk about this? Folks, because you and I live like this. We live like there's no spiritual realm. All All we consider is what we can see. Folks, and this is me, I live like 
a functional atheist. I say I believe there's a God, but I often live as, as if he's not there. I ignore him. And I say that I worship Jesus, but I actually like to worship my own version of Jesus. And if he doesn't meet up to the standards I have for him, I get upset with him. That makes me an idol worshiper because I'm not worshiping Jesus as he's revealed, but as I would like him to be. We have to give that up and worship God as he is. So there is a true and living God. But what is this true and living God like? What more can we know and trust about him? That's the next part. I believe that God is maker of heaven and earth. Who is this God to whom I give myself? And what must I give up in order to give myself to God, the maker? He's the creator, the maker of heaven and earth and all things in them. Paul said in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, if that's true, if he's the God who made the world and everything in it, then I must give up a couple of things. I must give up being my own God. I'm a creature. I'm not God. You've heard it said, there is a God, and I'm not him. I have to give that up. I have to give up uh, living like an agnostic. An agnostic says, agnostic means no knowledge. They just say, well, I can't know if there's a God or not. But I end up living as if there's not one. God's existence is not unknowable, Paul is saying. The apostles argued that God's existence is evident in creation. It's evident in the conscience of every person. And it's evident in the canon of Scripture, which contains historically documented eyewitness testimony that there is a God. In order to believe that he is the maker of heaven and earth and all things in it, I have to give up believing that I am God. But as the creator, he's two things. He's transcendent and imminent. Ooh, big words on a Sunday morning. Transcendent means he's above and beyond what he has made. Paul said in verses 24 and 25, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man as he gestures to all the temples around him. He doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He's transcendent. He's above and beyond his creation. But he's also imminent, which means he's up close and personal. Verse 25, he goes on, that God himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's personally involved, and he made from one man every nation to live on all the face of the earth. He determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. God is so intimately involved with his, creature, his creatures, that he determines how long they'll live and where. Because he wants them to seek him and find their way toward him. The Epicureans and the Stoics had a different understanding of God. The Epicureans conceived of him as remote and uninvolved in human affairs. The Stoics thought he was just a principle of reason that permeated every created thing. So if I'm going to believe what the apostles taught about God being both transcendent and imminent, above and beyond us, but up close and personal with us, I'm going to have to give up a couple of ways of thinking and living. 
I'm going to have to give up living like a deist. A deist is someone who believes that God created everything, got it running, and then walked away. Kind of Epicurean. But the truth is that even though God is distinct from us, he's not distant and disconnected. And folks, I don't know about you, but sometimes I live like a deist. Huh? Yeah, I know God created everything, but where is he? And what's he done for me lately? Do you ever wonder when your prayers keep hitting the ceiling, so it seems? Do you turn into a deist? I know he's there, but he doesn't care about me. I must give up living like a pantheist, one who believes that God is this divine principle or power that permeates everything like the Stoics did. No, the truth is God is personally involved with his creation. He's not an impersonal force that permeates creation. And so what that means is he cannot be manipulated by my obedience or by my superstitious going to church, saying my prayers. He can't be manipulated by my positive thinking. He can't be manipulated by my giving. He's not a cosmic vending machine. And yet I live like that a lot. So if I'm to believe what the apostles taught about God, I'm going to have to give up thinking that way and living that way. Okay, so there is a God. He's the maker of heaven and earth and everything in them. But what is this maker like? What more can we know and trust about him? Paul goes on. I believe that God is almighty. (laughs) He's almighty. Who is this God, this almighty God to whom I give myself? And what must I give up in order to give myself to him? Here we go. This is where you're going to have to buckle your seatbelt. We're going to go fast. As the maker, Paul says, God is almighty. He is almighty first because he has all power. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it. That assumes that he's a God of great power. If he made the world and everything in it. Therefore, if he's almighty because he has all power, I must give up being self-dependent. I don't have the power that I need to live the life I've been given by my maker. I'm dependent on him. With apologies to July 4th, there's no such thing as independence. (laughs) Truly. We are all dependent on the one who has all the power. He is almighty because he holds the highest position. Verse 24, being the Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man. He holds the highest position. He's sovereign. Therefore, I must give up trying to be the sovereign Lord, building my own little kingdom. I must give up my agenda for my life and seek first his lordship, his kingdom agenda for my life. You struggle with that one? It's all fine when he's doing what you want. It takes faith to believe that he's the Lord when he's not doing things according to your plans. He's almighty because he's the ultimate provider, verse 25 nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
He's the ultimate provider. Therefore, I must give up trying to add to God, add to what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. I must give up on trying to get God to love me and simply live in the love he's provided in Christ. I must quit trying to prove myself to God and rest on his provision instead. And if God is the ultimate provider, I must also give up my prayerlessness, my independent spirit. If he's the provider, I must actively ask for and seek his provision for me in all areas of my life. Ultimately, folks, my lack of prayer is a declaration of independence because prayer is a declaration of dependence on him. Next, if he is almighty, it's because he determines the time periods of our lives and the places in which we live. That's called providence. Verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. If God has determined the period of the time that I live and the place where I live, therefore I must give up thinking that I'm the center of the universe that my story is the only one that matters because he's done exactly the same thing for seven billion other people. But I also must give up thinking that my story doesn't matter because he's paid enough attention to me to decide how long I'm going to live and where. And this one's even harder. I must give up griping and grumbling about where God has put me and about the people he's given me. He is almighty because he determines our purpose for living, verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. There's your purpose. If he's determined our purpose for living, then I must give up trying to create my own purpose and order my whole life around seeking God and his purposes for my life. I must give up making my own plans for my life without asking God what he wants for me and from me. You folks who are about to go off to college, I, I have two of them. Are you asking God, what do you want for me? Yeah, I'm going to study this or I'm going to study that, but what do you want for me? When we get up in the morning, in the morning, do we ask, what do you want from me today, God? I have my agenda, what's yours? And finally, God is almighty because he is preeminent, because he's, the, he's our point of origin. He comes first, verse 28, in him, in him we live and move and have our being. That's deep, think about that. In him we live and move and have our being. Our living, our moving, our being is all wrapped up in him. It's funny, he's quoting one of their poets. And this quote was referring to Zeus. But Paul's applying it to God, the God who is revealed in Jesus. If, if he is preeminent, then I must give up believing and living like I'm the point, like I'm preeminent, like life is all about me. I'm not the point of God's story, but I, I do play a part in it. I'm not the point of my own story. The point of my own story is to learn, love, and live in his story. 
And when I live in his story for his glory and for the good of other people, then I'll know the gladness for which I was made and for which my heart longs. So, there is a God. He is the maker of heaven and earth and everything in them. And he is almighty. But here's where I struggle. How is that belief different from other monotheistic teachings about God? How is that different from Judaism? How is it different from Islam? If there's a God who made us and is all-powerful, why should I trust him? We don't tend to trust people who have all the power. He is God, but the question still remains, is he good? And the Bible knows, the apostles know we have to wrestle with that because in Hebrews eleven six it says this. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe two things, that he exists, and that's what we've talked about so far, and that he rewards those who seek him. It's not enough to believe that God exists or even that he's powerful. We must believe that he is true and that he can be trusted. We must believe that he is God and that he is good. We must believe that he is real and that he is rewarding, that he exists and that he is excellent. And what makes this God one who can be trusted, who is good and rewarding and excellent, is that he is God the Father. What separates Christianity from Judaism and Islam is when with our lips and our lives we say, I believe in God the Father. And so who is this Father to whom I give myself? And and what must I give up in order to give myself to him? He's the true and living almighty maker of heaven and earth. And he is a father. He's the father in three ways. He's the father of all the living He's the father of Jesus, and he's the father of those adopted through faith in Jesus. He's the father of all the living in the sense that he's our creator. Paul said, he quoted the poets and said, we are indeed his offspring, and being then God's offspring. So there's a sense in which he's the father of every living person, every person he's ever made. And if that's true, then I must give up believing that I'm only responsible to myself, for myself. There's a sense in which every human being is the offspring of God and is therefore accountable to God for his or her life. That's why Paul goes on to say in verses 30 and 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He's calling all of his offspring to change their minds about who's in charge because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. But again, this doesn't quite get it why it is rewarding for us to seek this God. He may be a father, but if he's simply a father who only judges our performance, then I'm not sure I want to give myself to that God. Some of you have had a father who was only a judge. And if that's the only kind of father you know God to be, then the apostles say you don't don't yet know God the Father as he fully wants you to know him. God as judge isn't all that the apostles taught about God the Father. He's the Father in another sense. 
in two other senses. First, he's the father of Jesus, the son. Paul said, he's, a fi- he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. He's talking about Jesus. And of this, God has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What, what does it mean? He judged the world. He will judge the world in righteousness. It means what it sounds like. And if this is true, uh, if it's true that the living God is the maker of all things and all people, if he is almighty in all the ways Paul has described, if he's the father of all because he gave us life and purpose, then he surely will be the one who judges whether we have lived as he created us to live. This is not good news, friends, because all of us are wayward, rebellious children. We are offspring who have gone off on our own. So the news that God is judge is is not good news unless, and there is good news. The good news is that because of his love for us, the Father has has chosen to judge us in a certain way. And Paul says he's chosen to judge us by a man whom he has appointed. Literally, by, not by a man, but in the person of a man whom he has appointed. He's going to judge us in Jesus, the perfect son who came in the flesh to take the place of rebellious sons and daughters like you and me. Paul said later in Second Corinthians, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Paul said, of this, God has given us assurance to all by raising Jesus from the dead. What that means is God the Father accepted the provision and payment made by God the Son by raising him from the dead by the power of God the Spirit. This is the God Paul asks you to give yourself to. This God is a loving Father who not only requires righteousness, but then provides it for us. God the Father did this because he's loving and merciful. He's full of grace. Paul dared any of those people to say they had a God like this one. Frederick Buechner once wrote, The grace of God means something like this. God saying, here is your life. You might never have been, but you are, because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. What he's saying is, what God is saying is, I've given you life as your maker, as the Almighty. And yes, you've squandered it like the prodigal son, but I've also given you life in my son Jesus, so that like the prodigal son, you may be welcomed into your father's forever party. This God is the God the apostles preached. And so, the father of Jesus provided a way for his rebellious, idol-loving, wayward offspring to be adopted into the family, and that makes him a father in a third sense. He's the father of those adopted through faith in Jesus the Son. This is what the apostles taught. 
by giving up all other ways of self-salvation, all other little g-gods, and by faith giving yourself to Jesus only, you can become an adopted son or daughter of God. Paul said it this way in Galatians, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. The apostle John said it this way in his gospel, But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What what does this mean practically for you? Remember our assurance of the gospel after our confession this morning from Psalm 103, verses 11 to 14. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. God the Father, who is the maker of heaven and earth, knows how high the heavens are above the earth. And he says his love for you is higher still. God the Father who created east and west. And he knows how far east and west are from each other. And he knows that he's separated your sins through Jesus that far from you. God the Father, the one who put your frame together, who made you from the dust, knows your frame, knows that you are but dust, and he offers you his tender compassion when you sin. This is the God to whom we give ourselves. I put in the program this quote from J.I. Packer. When the Christian says the first clause of the creed, this one we've studied this morning, he will put all of this together and confess his creator as both the father of his savior and his own father through Christ. Listen, a father who now loves him no less than he loves his only begotten son. That is a marvelous confession to be able to make, Packer says. If you have given up all other gods and have given yourself over to God as he is revealed in Jesus, then the Father loves you with all the same joy and passion and in pleasure that he loves his own son, Jesus. My friends, this is the God the apostles proclaim. This is the God who calls you to trust him, who invites you to give up all other trusts and give yourself only to him. Will you do it? Oh, Father, we come to you There's so much more that could be said. And and we confess, we confess that we look at this creed and we say, oh, these are just the basics, you know? I know all that stuff. But when we really start to dig into it, we're convicted that we struggle to even believe the basics about you. We live like functional atheists and deists and agnostics and 
idolaters and and we need your spirit to come and change our hearts so that we would be able to say forsaking all others I give myself only unto you God the Father almighty maker of heaven and earth Jesus his only son our Lord and the Holy Spirit you are the God to whom I give all of me forever. God, help us to do that. We want to, but, but we can't. We need your help. Would you do that in us by the power of your spirit? And, and even these offerings that we bring are just a, just a token of that, that sentiment that we give our whole lives to you. You want more than a check. You want us. And so we offer you ourselves. For Christ's sake, amen.